Well, again, we are turning to Colossians. And we enter now the farewell section of this epistle, or this letter. Uh, Paul's sufficiently addressed a bunch of the problems that uh, Epaphras brought to him in Rome. These challenges that were encroaching on the local church. He talked about legalism, if you remember, mysticism, uh, many other things. That was all followed by practical instruction on family and worship and uh, finally prayer. Now here at this, this section, this close, we find eight names. They're names of men who Paul considered comrades. They joined the apostle in ministry. Remember, the Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome. On this occasion, he was actually under house arrest, and he's awaiting trial for stirring up discontent with the Jews. This is an imprisonment that he will eventually be released from. So we arrive at this farewell section uh, of this letter to Colossae, and these verses are typically some of the most overlooked in Scripture. They're neglected. When we, when we read an epistle or a letter like this, so often we go through all of the corrective doctrine and we absorb all of that and we kind of come to these names where it says, well, such and such greets you or he or she sends their greetings. And in our culture, we start to think of this as a formality. You say goodbye. We kind of start to check out with our minds rather than finding out what God is trying to teach us by putting these names here. Now, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So, here we have some important information from God. We're going to do a little background research on these men. Uh, it'll be beneficial for our understanding. And uh, we're going to find out why are they mentioned? Why are they here? And for... For a matter of fact, when we're asking that question, why are they here at all? Why are they in this text? And why are they in ministry? Uh, Why would eight men, seemingly healthy, and uh, having lives going on, interfere with the direction of their life in order to travel a thousand miles, possibly, to another city to talk to a small little town, Colossae? If you remember... When we started this letter, I put up a picture of what the remains are of Colossae. It's a mound of dirt. By the time the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, there wasn't a whole lot left of Colossae. It was a small backwoods town, and yet God loves them. Paul loved them. And he wrote them this letter, and now we find a couple servants who are delivering it to Colossae. Professionally, these men could have done other things. Luke was a doctor. If Tychicus and Epaphras were healthy enough to travel a thousand miles from Rome uh, by sea and by land, by foot, by wagon, they're likely healthy enough to have done another career field. They could have um, bought a home, made an extra mortgage payment per year to pay it off early. They could have put an extra percent into fidelity investments, I'm sure, and uh, spent extra time earning cash. They might even upgraded their car if they had one at that time. These men didn't do that. They weren't concerned about filling barns. 
being in close proximity with the Apostle Paul, we can expect that uh, these men had heard what Jesus has taught, had taught. We can expect that he had, they had heard this, this striking image of this man in Luke chapter 12. He was a farmer. And this farmer had had a bountiful year. And it reveals to us that rather than sharing that bounty he had so much, they decided he was going to tear down his barns and he was going to build bigger barns. Truth is that these friends of Paul invested their lives and their abilities for Christ for the same reason that you and I do. In the end, we know that we win. In fact, we're on the only team that does win. You and I and Tychicus and Aristarchus absolutely have to believe that. If we don't believe that, what's the point? What is the point if we don't believe that? Why are we here? Why are we preaching? Why do we give money to those in need? Why do we support ministries across the globe? Why do we preach the gospel? If there isn't a risen Savior, there's really no reason for us to be here. But there is a risen Savior. We are here, and we are worshiping in truth. Death didn't defeat Christ. If we've been born again of the Holy Spirit, which I expect many of us are here, perhaps not all of us, I pray that it is all of us, but if we've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit and we've been given everlasting life, it all makes sense. That's the reason we are here. We win because Christ has already won at the cross. This text also implies, amplifies the fact that Paul was not a one-man show. None of the apostles were. The apostles trained other men and women to carry on the work of ministry. Paul told young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is what Paul modeled for these men who are listed here today. He poured his energy into a team of believers who would carry on the work of ministry long after he's gone. He knew that his end was coming. The church did not stop with Paul. Didn't even stop with these eight men listed here. So we begin with this name Tychicus in verse 7. As you look at your Bibles... Paul tells Colossae, As to my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bond servant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your heart. Tychicus is a loyal servant. In fact, he's a slave to Christ. The term bond servant is the same term that Paul used to describe himself. In Paul's mind, Tychicus is time-tested. He's approved. He can be trusted to deliver this letter to Colossae and to give accurate information concerning the apostle. Paul was in prison. He was awaiting trial. And the Colossians would surely be encouraged by the news of the circumstances that surrounded them. 
The fact says, Paul says, our circumstances probably also includes news about Epaphras, who first brought the gospel to Colossae. Now, Epaphras is still in Rome with Paul. We'll find why in a couple verses. But Tychicus was viewed as enormously trustworthy, so much so that he was considered a capable substitute to oversee the development of local churches on the island of Crete. We find that in Titus chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, it also reveals that Tychicus is competent enough to take the reins of the church in Ephesus in replacement of Timothy when Paul calls for Timothy to return to Rome. So Tychicus was a man who was knowledgeable of God's word and who possessed an overwhelming conviction. These were perilous times for the church where they were facing serious persecution. Both doctrinally, they were being challenged, and physically, they were being persecuted. Paul warned Timothy to beware of Alexander the coppersmith, who had done much harm to Paul. This is the environment that Tychicus is going out into. Yet Paul trusted Tychicus to remain on and defend Ephesians. The, the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is the same place, by the way, we'll talk about in a few moments, that there was a riot that erupted because Paul was preaching against false idols. It was, it was a very uh, daunting culture to be ministering in. And Tychicus was able to go in there and relieve Timothy. So Tychicus was qualified as an overseer of the church. One of these qualifications of a church overseer we see in Titus chapter 1 is that the overseer must hold fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. Paul gives a reason. He says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, that is the Jews, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach, all for the sake of sordid gain. We need to be praying that God will provide more men to His church, like Tychicus. Churches today need strong leadership. Those who can exhort in sound doctrine and refute people who contradict We need men who are willing to spend a little more time in their Bibles, learn their doctrines, stand strong in the faith to strengthen their families. I look forward to shaking the hand of Tychicus when we get up into heaven. Next in verse 9 we find Onesimus. Paul writes, And with him, that's with Tychicus, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Onesimus is a faithful and beloved servant, faithful and beloved person as well. But he had a unique connection to Colossae. Anybody remember what it is? Onesimus, who was one of their number, was an escaped slave who had ran off to Rome. He had, in some way, shape, or form, wronged his master. There in Rome, Onesimus received Christ and became a Christian and a close friend to the Apostle Paul. 
So Onesimus travels with Tychicus. Imagine this now. They're going 1,000 miles. They're primarily going to deliver a letter. But Onesimus is not going to deliver the same letter as Tychicus. He has another letter to give to a man named Philemon. So imagine you've got a slave who is going to return to his master's doorstep with a letter from the Apostle Paul. Combine this with the interesting fact that Colossian church assembled for worship in this master Philemon's house. Yes, that is true. Listen to these words from the opening uh, of Paul's greeting to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, possibly his wife, our sister in Christ, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your house. Philemon's home hosted the church in Colossae. This all fits pretty nicely, doesn't it? Tychicus and Onesimus are traveling to Colossae with two letters. And I would argue next week, propose next week, not argue, Propose next week that they had a third letter with them as well. One is addressed to the church of Colossae. A second is addressed to Philemon. And a third I will propose is a letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. They just dropped it off a few miles back, about eight miles back in Laodicea, before uh, they continued on in in an attempt to get to Colossae. So Onesimus becomes a model of an honesty. After coming to Christ, as most of us experience, we long to make things right. Onesimus does that by returning to his master's home. He has no certainty of what awaits him. As a slave, he didn't have any rights. But he's comforted in the fact that his master is a Christian. We never hear about Onesimus again in Scripture don't have any idea for sure what happened to him. It is interesting, however, that in writings between the early church fathers, you might have heard the name before, Ignatius. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. In one of his letters communicating with the other churches, he mentions a man who had become bishop in Ephesus. That's an early word, elder, bishop. And he mentions his name, Onesimus. What are the chances? With God, pretty good. We don't know for sure. But in all honesty, Onesimus becomes a model for us of what God can do with someone from the lowest social strata of their day when he simply submits to God, offers himself to him. In verse 10 and 11, we find three Jews. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you've received, you will receive instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers of the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. And they, Paul says, have proved to be an encouragement to me. Aristarchus was a man of courage and loyalty. He stuck with Paul through every peril. Aristarchus is one of the men that's mentioned in Acts 19 that was carried away by the mob in Ephesus when Paul was speaking out against these false carved images 
of their of their goddess Artemis. So early on, Aristarchus is drug off into the crowd. He's carried away in a in a mob. Aristarchus also remained alongside Paul through his imprisonment here that we read about in this epistle. He's present during Paul's trials before Festus and Agrippa. Aristarchus is even named as one of the men who accompanied Paul on that final voyage that was shipwrecked. He was with Paul that entire time, all the way up till Paul gets finally imprisoned the last time in Rome. Aristarchus was fearless. In addition, we find Mark. We all know a lot about him. After deserting Paul and Barnabas in an earlier missionary journey, he redeems himself. And we find him serving Paul here and ultimately even pens a gospel that goes by his name, the Gospel of Mark. Mark's the model for a myriad of Christians who've lost their way through life, that they've gone off the beaten trail, that they've run off the tracks. He turns it around, brings it on, and finishes strong at the end of his life. He's a good man. Then we have Justice. He'd previously been called Jesus. This is a poss- it's possible to uh, come to the idea that this is the point where people stopped lo- using Jesus as a typical name. We don't know that for certain. Uh, it's implied that they renamed him Justice. There's some speculation in that. Though we don't find males in Scripture uh, or the early church uh, very often named Jesus after the point of the resurrection. It's not that it's prohibited. But it's interesting that we find all through church history lots of people named Mark and John and Rebecca, Mary, all these different names. Very rarely do we hear uh, of people named Jesus. I know there are some. Maybe an indication that the name Jesus is, is typically reserved for Jesus Christ. We also might take note that these men are the only three converted Jews that were with Paul at the time in Rome. Rome was founded years earlier as a Gentile church. Romans chapter 1, Paul writes to this beloved church in Rome, he says, For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by one another's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want, to be, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I've often planned to come to you, but I've been prevented so far. He wants to come so that, he says, I may obtain a spiritual fruit among you also, even as I have the rest of the Gentiles. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Before Paul was there, the church had an obvious presence in Rome. We read in the letter to the Romans that Paul greets several dozen people at the end of that letter um, by name. It's also coincidental that none of the names that are quoted there are Peter. Peter didn't establish the church in Rome. Even at this time, when Paul's in prison there in Rome, he says there are three from the circumcision that that are present there. Three Jews. Peter's not there yet. 
It's likely that uh, later on we, we find from church history and other writings that uh, Peter ri- arrived a bit later and was ultimately uh, uh, martyred just as Paul was by Emperor Nero. So uh, he did arrive on the scene. Peter wasn't the first one in Rome. Next we have a name in verse 12 called Epaphras. We spoke uh, briefly when we began began this series uh, about Epaphras. Chapter 1 identifies him as the individual who brought the gospel to Colossae and neighboring towns. At that time, I told you that Epaphras had probably first heard the gospel um, as Paul was in in Ephesus and uh, came to Christ and then went back to his hometown to share the gospel. So verse 12 says, Epaphras, who's one of your number, it means he's a Colossian, a bond slave of Jesus Christ sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, so that you may stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. That's his prayer. That you may stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. He continues, For I testify for him, Paul says that he has a deep concern for you and for all those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Epaphras has such a deep concern for the problems that are arising in Colossae that he traveled to Rome to get advice from the Apostle Paul on how to handle these false doctrines that were encroaching on the church. Each one of those is corrected in this letter. Why didn't Epaphras return with Tychicus and Onesimus? The answer is in the Philemon letter. It says, in that farewell to Philemon, that uh, Paul says that Epaphras sends his greetings, and he identifies him there as a fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. So somehow, Epaphras landed himself in jail with Paul. Might have been due to preaching or proselytizing. That's what Epaphras did. I mean, he planted churches. Colossae, Hierapolis, Laodicea, at least three that he'd went in and founded churches through the preaching of the gospel. So this is what he did. He went around and confronted the culture. So it's very possible that that's exactly what got throwing him in the same place as what Paul was under house arrest. We find out in chapter 1 and 4, both these chapters classify Epaphras as a man of prayer. Paul had two things to say about him. He labors earnestly in prayer. And he has a deep concern for souls. It's no wonder that God used him to plant at least three churches. He was devoted to prayer. He was concerned about the lost souls. If you'd like to see your ministry flourish, if you'd like to be used of God to plant ministries, to lead people to Christ, whatever mission God has for you, it will benefit you greatly to become a person of prayer. As for the team in Rome, there's two more names that are listed. These are the ones now who were in Rome or coming from Rome. We find Luke and Demas. 
There's a striking contrast between these two personalities. Verse 14 says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, as also does Demas. Luke, who is identified as a physician, accompanied Paul through a large part of his missionary journeys. We find that in Acts. He tended to him during injury and illness. He's undoubtedly a brilliant man. He ended up writing two books of the Bible. One's called the Gospel of Luke. He also wrote the Acts of the Apostles, together combining to form approximately 27% of the New Testament. His writing methodology is detailed. His literary, literary usage is very skilled. Listen to this opening greeting to a man named Theophilus in the opening of the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished amongst, among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, Luke says, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things which you have been taught. Luke, the physician, proves that you don't have to be a numbskull in order to have faith. He was a brilliant man. You don't have to check your brain at the door to be a Christian. Certainly, Christianity is a religion of faith, but it's faith based on facts. Christianity has been based on facts from the history that is documented throughout the scriptures, proven by archaeology, demonstrated by droves of eyewitnesses, most, if not all, were willing to die for their faith. I have to say, you've got to find it very intriguing in the Bible that you have over 40 different authors, over 1,500 years, a time frame of over 1,500 years that these scriptures were, were written. It's never had anything in it proven wrong. Forty different authors, 1,500 years, never anything proven wrong. How about science? Is anything ever proven wrong in science? Science is changing and failing every time you pick up a new newspaper. I remember back about 25 years ago, everyone was talking about a high-fiber diet and how with that, it was going to reduce dramatically the occurrences of colon cancer took about 20 years after studying a whole lot of people who had a high fiber diet and they found out in Canada that there was no real difference at all between people who had a high fiber diet or a low fiber diet in the occurrences of colon cancer no difference they, they were more regular Metamucil made a whole bunch of money Nonetheless, if you put your faith in medicine or science, that'll change. The physician Luke knew that. That's why he wrote facts. He knew the scripture never fails you. Now, there's a criticism that will come in into in the church, and that is that the reason that the Bible uh, isn't proven wrong is because it's just so vague. 
It's like, you know, it doesn't really say anything specific enough to really know. And uh, let me read from the opening of Jeremiah. This will be very familiar to a lot of the books of the Bible. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Amnon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. Does that sound like anything vague at all? Scripture is not vague. In fact, Scripture does not uh, refrain at all. It does not gravitate away at all from being challenged, from being scrutinized. It always holds true. Scripture never fails. There's one more individual here named Demas. Unfortunately for him, he ultimately becomes a contrast to the faith that is demonstrated from the other seven. The only place we find anything further about Demas is in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy was Paul's last letter of his last imprisonment in his last chapter that he ever wrote. This time, Paul is not under house arrest. He's in a dungeon facing execution. future looked really bleak. Paul said in the final chapter, 2 Timothy verse 6, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me, Paul says, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who love his appearing. Make sure, make every effort, Timothy, to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. In Paul's darkest hour, Demas deserted him. Reason, the reason is, Paul tells us, he loved the present material world more than building the kingdom of God. I really don't know what became of Demas. No idea. Scripture doesn't say. What's unfortunate for Demas there is fortunate for us. I'll share how. We learn an incredibly important lesson from Demas. The fact of the matter is, we're going to find some people who, when the going gets tough, they're going to pack up and run. It's going to happen. When the church is assaulted, when persecution comes, when our jobs are threatened, when the heaviest trials of our culture come, some people are going to leave. We don't get rattled by that. We don't get troubled by that. We persevere. We drive on. The Apostle Paul had people desert him. The Apostle John had others desert him. 1 John 2.19, famous text, They went out of us, but they were not really of us. Or if they had been of us, they would have remained. But they went out so that it would be revealed that they were not of us. We need to expect that we're going to find people like Demas. When it gets really tough going, there's going to be people, as we're praying, that are going to slip for the exit. It's all right. We need to persevere. I say if there's one thing that I think maybe goes a little bit under, under scrutinized, under 
preached by pastors today, it is the fact that we're going to face persecution at some point. It's going to get really hard. Life is really, really hard. Physically, mentally, emotionally, Christians, non-Christians, life is hard. We need to persevere. It's one of the things that we're going to be taught next week in the final few verses of this book is that Paul is going to encourage them in Colossae, a specific individual, actually, and us, to persevere in whatever we have before us. Will you pray with me? Lord, uh, we, we are so thankful for this group of individuals who remain firm, fought till the end, Think of a Tychicus who will go to any location Paul asks and he'll defend the flock of God. He'll fight with, uh, with all his heart with the truth of the Lord that's in his heart, Lord. He'll defend the church. And uh, Lord, uh, what a wonderful, faithful man he was. Lord Onesimus and... Uh, the fact he was willing to uh, change his direction of fleeing, Lord, and actually to stand up like a man and go back and say, I'm home. Philemon, I'm home. I, uh, he repented, Lord, and uh, praise God that he uh, becomes our model for a man who is, uh, Lord, so willing to chance everything, to restore that which went awry. Lord, there's so many names in Scripture that are models for us, models of what to do, models of what not to do, Lord. Old Testament, New Testament, you give us all of these people, all of humanity for us to look at these names throughout Scripture and identify with them. Lord, we can look and see, are we people of faith like Father Abraham? Are we, Lord, uh, Strong in faith like David. Do we stumble from time to time like David? Lord, your scripture is like a mirror. We stick it up to ourselves and we look and it exposes our every thought. Exposes every deed, Lord God, that we've done in righteousness or unrighteousness, Lord. We thank you even for the models of what not to follow, whether it be Jezebel or Demas Alexander the coppersmith, Lord. It's amazing how we can be guided to you, guided to Christ-likeness by simply reading your holy word, Lord. Help us to do that. Bless our day here today as we um, enjoy this fellowship lunch coming, Lord, and, and the meeting following. Help all those out there who are struggling this week. Uh, I know there's a lot of illness. Lord, I know there's people in pain. There's those that just want to see you return, Lord. So we pray that every moment that we're here, that you'll use us, you'll strengthen us. Bless us, Lord, to uh, glory in your name, to spread your name, Lord. And uh, Lord, we ask for many more years here, not because we love it here, but because every day is another opportunity to tell someone else about Jesus Christ. If we're not for that, Lord, uh, there's only one other goal in our heart, and that is we ask... Lord Jesus, come quickly. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen.